Last evening I tried to show that in securing justification, God was doing something deeper. There was a deeper problem to be solved than your unrighteousness before a holy God. And that problem was that God seemed to be unrighteous because he passed over former sins. In fact, the whole Old Testament, I think, bears witness to this great truth that was revealed right at the center of Mount Sinai. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the very heart of the teaching of the law on Mount Sinai is the beautiful, glorious gospel declaration that God passes over iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's the heart of Mount Sinai. God passes over iniquity and transgression and sin and therefore looks unrighteous. And that's the first problem that had to be solved on the cross is the vindication of God's allegiance to the worth of His glory that had been trampled in sin and was now just being passed over. Something had to vindicate God's allegiance to the worth of His glory. And it was the death of His Son. That the Son would pay a price equal to the glory that had been trampled, settled accounts for the people of God, and vindicated the glory of God. Now, I said last night, you can't grasp that until you have a God-centered view of sin and righteousness. Sin, Romans 3.23, is in its essence a falling short of the glory of God. Sin is always a belittling of the glory of God. Sin is what David did, a despising of the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether it's stealing or lying or greed or sexual misconduct. It's always Godward. I had a man in my office on, on Wednesday... And I said, are you a Christian? And he said, no. I said, do you want to be one? And he said, I think so. And my next question to him was, I don't have any particular pattern I go, I just felt led to ask this. I said, tell me what sin is. Tell me what you think sin is. As I wanted to get on being, does this man know anything? He says, well, it's just wrongdoing against people and and against yourself. And I waited. And I said that you just, you've just let, left one person out of the definition, God. And this man did not know the nature of sin. He didn't know what sin was. He didn't. And uh, so far, it's a happy story. Uh, he followed through. He confessed the Lord. I'm praying that he'll be there on Sunday, tomorrow morning, for a special class we have beginning for people like him. But he did not know what sin was. Sin is not just hurting your grandmother, which he had done. Sin is not just making a mess of your life, which he had done. Sin is despising God. Sin is belittling the glory of God. If that doesn't grieve you, you're probably not ready to be converted. 
You probably will not be converted no matter what you pray and what you say because conversion is a transformation of the heart towards God fundamentally and the spin-off towards people and yourself is profound. But it isn't first. So there has to be a God-centered understanding of sin and there has to be a God-centered understanding of righteousness. And I defined it. I defined God's righteousness as God's unwavering commitment always to uphold the worth of his glory. In other words, he has to do what's right. He has to put his highest affections on what is of highest value. He is of highest value. Therefore, for him to be righteous, he must love infinitely his glory and uphold it at all times. And if there were ever a millisecond in the history of the universe where God ceased to be devoted to the worth of his glory, he would be unrighteous, and I believe the whole universe would cease to be what it is. It just is an inconceivable thing that God would ever be unrighteous. We would be without hope if God had not found a way both to be righteous and to pass over sin. And he did find a way and it was the cross. It was the death of his son. The death of his son is both a declaration of the worth of God's glory and a declaration that God passes over sins. Now there's a name for this. It's called justification. And that's what this conference is about. The justification of the ungodly by faith. So I want to talk this morning about the nature of justification. Like last night, I focused on the ground of, of justification. And this afternoon, we will talk about the means of justification. Now... The other part of the name of this conference is uh, justification and the joy of God. So I want to pose at the outset, and the reason Alan read the text he did is this question. How can it be that God the Father took pleasure in the death of his son? How can that be? The King James Version uh, verse 10 in the text that was read is, I think, an accurate rendering when it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. If you do a word study of that Hebrew word, which I tried to do in the book, The Pleasures of God, that's not a bad translation. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Here's a New Testament statement of that truth. If, if you're questioning whether pleasure is a good rendering there, Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now that's an appalling statement to me. The blood running down the side of Jesus smelled good to his father. Sounds cruel. Sounds hideous. I mean, a crucifixion was a horrible thing. It was as horrible as you can get in killing a man. And for the Bible to go so far as to say it was a fragrant offering to God is an appalling way of talking 
I mean, if, if you think there are radical and appalling ways of talking today, you can't get more appalling than to say the death of a man's son smells good to the father. You just can't get more radical than that. How can that be? That, I want to try to answer that question this morning in a roundabout way as we move through the nature of justification. As Jesus died for us, it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father. How can we say that? I'm going to invite you to go with me now to Romans 3 again. Most of my reflections are based on Romans 3 and 4 here. Though I'm going to cut an arc back to Isaiah 53 before we're done. And I'll be jumping around in certain places in Romans. But you might want to start with me at Romans 3.26 this morning as we move into the nature of justification. The text from last night ended with these words in verse 26 of Romans 3. It, that is the death of, of Christ, it was to prove that God Himself is righteous. That was last night. And that He justifies him who has faith in Jesus. So the justifying is this morning and the faith in Jesus is this afternoon. Now we're not talking yet this morning, let me stress this. We're not talking yet this morning about the subjective appropriation of the gift of justification into your hearts. That's not what I'm talking about yet. I'm talking about now the objective reality of what was secured for you by the death of Jesus outside of you before you ever existed or dreamed of believing in Jesus. What was secured for you? What was bought for you? What was there for you? And what will you come into the possession of as God's child, as we'll see this afternoon, through faith? But here we talk about the objective reality and nature of what he secured. So, let me develop four things that justification is. Number one, justification is being forgiven for all your sins. Past, present, and future. Now I'm going to run you ahead to chapter 4 of Romans, verses 5 to 8. Verse 5. To one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. So notice, David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from the law. And then he quotes this text from the psalm. Blessed are those who, three things. One, his iniquities are forgiven. Two, his sins are covered. Three, the Lord does not reckon his sin against him. So at the heart of justification is this, you could call it first a negative work, 
That is, God does not impute to us our sins. He doesn't reckon them to us. He forgives them. He covers them. Those three phrases. And notice here, there is no limit placed upon those sins whatsoever. He doesn't say, to the point of your conversion, He wipes out your sins. For your future sins, you, you have to fend for yourself. Or you have to negotiate. Or some other way of handling future sin is different from handling past sin. It's a great danger in thinking that way. This text doesn't think that way. It is stated very absolutely, the Lord does not reckon sin against us. Doesn't say past, doesn't say future, doesn't say present. It is sin. Sin ceases to be a thing that stands against me when I am justified. It's a gloriously absolute, unqualified way of talking about being rid of sin. Now, how can God do that? Verse 24 from last night's text in chapter 3 says, We are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word redemption means a freeing, a releasing, a loosing from imprisonment. And the imprisonment in view is the imprisonment of guilt and the imprisonment of condemnation. The imprisonment brought upon us by sin. And so through the releasing, the loosing, the freeing that comes from the death of Jesus, we walk out of that. It is covered. It is not imputed to us. It is forgiven. We leave it. It's behind. It's gone. And it is not against us anymore. Galatians 3.13 puts it like this. Christ redeemed, same word, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Or 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. Or Isaiah 53.6, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So justification is the forgiveness, the covering of sins by virtue of the fact that they have been lain, laid on Jesus and we don't bear them anymore. He bore our sin, He bore our curse, He bore our guilt, and so we're released from condemnation through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something else about this forgiveness, this negative work. Before anything is added to us, something is taken from us, namely sin. Now, notice... It is a suffering or a redemption done once for all. I want to put this over against a way of understanding that has been very destructive, I think. Christ is not sacrificed repeatedly. He's not sacrificed repeatedly. Not in the Lord's Supper. Not in the Mass. Hebrews 9.26. The book of Hebrews is a glorious book on this truth. Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That is a gloriously absolute statement. Once for all, He appeared to put away sin absolutely from God's people. Or chapter 9, verse 12 in Hebrews, He entered once for all into the holy place, once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Once he shed his blood, 
the redemption, the freeing, the releasing, the covering is eternal. It cannot be repeated. It cannot be improved upon. For his people, he has finished the work. Now, do you see the connection between that once-for-allness of Christ's death and the totality of your sins? Had there been multiple sacrifices, you might think that each sacrifice covers the past. Well, good. Right now, yesterday is clean. It's all right. But tomorrow's failings and the sin in 10 years, there'll have to be another thing that happens. Whereas this stress upon the once-for-allness of the sacrifice is clearly intended to cover the allness of the sin. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So point number one under the meaning of justification is we have in justification the forgiveness for all our sins that we have ever committed that we will commit this morning. Perhaps even in my preaching I will sin. And all that we will ever commit again. They are covered. He imputes them no longer to us. That's the first meaning. The second meaning of justification is that we are reckoned righteous with God's righteousness imputed to us or reckoned to us. This is just the other side of the coin, the positive side. He takes something from us all our sin, and he imputes something to us, namely the righteousness of God. Now in Romans 3, verse 21 to 22, Paul has just said in verse 20 that no human being can be justified by works of the law, that is, by any efforts to earn anything. And then he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So even though no one can be justified by works of the law, there is a righteousness from God that you may have through faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus dies to demonstrate the righteousness of God, as we showed last night in verses 25 and 26, He makes that righteousness available to you. The righteousness of God is the only righteousness that counts with God. No righteousness less than that will hold sway with God. That righteousness, as we heard Luther knew well, was against us in our sin. It can be nothing else than against us in our sin. And if he was to not only pass over that sin, but even take that righteousness and make it ours, so with it and in it we can stand before him, there had to be a settling of counts or a vindication of that righteousness so that the passing over of our sin and the giving of that gift would not impugn the righteousness of God. And Christ's blood and Christ's death 
provided that great vindication. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is probably as very near the center of my own favorite expression of this imputation of righteousness. You know this, this precious verse. I hope you do. Let me read it for you. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Christ knew no sin. Christ never sinned, not in attitude, or word, or action. He lived perfectly for the glory of God. We, on the other hand, sin every day. Our best actions, I think, are tainted by motives that are less than loving God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Who of us ever comes to the end of a day and says, with all my strength and all my soul and all my heart, I have loved God fully today. And therefore, we are the opposite of Jesus. But God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and ordained a magnificent exchange for his people. Christ would be sin and we would be righteousness. Now it does not say Christ becomes a sinner. It says Christ becomes sin. It bears a lot of reflection why it says that. I think it means that our sin and our guilt and our punishment and our alienation from God, our unrighteousness, are imputed to Christ. They are reckoned to be His. And the reverse then is true, namely, His righteousness and His holiness become or are imputed to us. He bears ours, we bear His. He wears ours, we wear His. He owns ours, we own His. It's an awesome thought. The point is not that Christ became morally a sinner and we became morally righteous. The point is that Christ bears an alien sin and suffers for it and we bear an alien righteousness and live through it. This is, a, this, is, this is the kind of thing that once it grips you, like it gripped Luther, provides the kind of boldness. I preached a sermon one time from Micah 7, 7 to 8 called Gutsy Guilt. And that's, I believe, the essence of the Christian life. You will never move beyond failure in this life. And the closer you get to God and the more you see of His holiness, the more you will grieve over the smallest failures of attitude. And therefore, if you're to have any triumph in life, instead of be a broken person lying down saying, I can do nothing for God, the only way to get beyond that is not to start thinking highly of your failures, but to have gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt rooted in the fact that his righteousness is made over to me. And my sin is made over to him. 
He bears my condemnation. I will live his eternal life, come what may, and I am his. He can use me. The, the triumph, the strength that broken people need is not merely the caressing of their egos. They need to feel what it is to be gripped by the righteousness of an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness wrapping them in mighty, powerful arms and using them in their failure. Is, it, it took Luther into unbelievable triumphs over sin, though he knew himself a sinner to the end of his days. And we'll hear more about that, I'm sure. So, justification means, number one, our sin is covered. And number two, an alien righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, is made over to me and becomes mine. Now, let me just warn you again here. I am not now yet talking about real active, lived out holiness. I'm not talking about sanctification. I will this afternoon and how they're connected. I'm talking about the foundation of sanctification. You cannot get to first base in becoming holy until you know yourself reckoned holy. Here's the way I thought of saying it most recently that has helped me tremendously. The only sin in your life that you can make any progress in overcoming is a forgiven sin. Does that make sense? Think on that. The only sin in your life that you can begin to get some triumph over is a forgiven sin. If you reverse that order, and say, I must begin to get some triumph here over this sin so that it will be forgiven. You won't make any headway. In fact, it is legalism to the core. The essence of legalism is that reversal. And your efforts to overcome the sin are odious in the sight of God. Why did he call the Pharisees the names he called them when they were laboring so hard to overcome the sins in their lives? It's because they were not laboring by faith they were not laboring in the lavish love of their father for them. Don't make that mistake now of getting this afternoon's message on the connection between justification and sanctification reversed. You won't make any headway in the Christian life until you have been gripped by the glorious free gift to sinners. Isn't it a startling thing that it says he justifies the ungodly? Not those who've made some progress. Number three. Being justified means being freely loved by God. And treated with grace. If God did not love you. There would have been no tension between his righteousness and the need to vindicate it because he would have simply vindicated it in hell. Hell is a perfect vindication of the righteousness of God for those whose sins are not covered by the blood of Jesus. 
God could settle accounts and vindicate His righteousness without any cross perfectly by putting everyone in hell. He was not beholden to give us the cross. And the reason for the cross is the love of God for sinners. It's the love of God that created the need for the righteousness of God to send the Son of God to vindicate that righteousness. Romans chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. While we were yet weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Died for the ungodly. Why? One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that when Christ died, what was being manifest and displayed, yes, from last night, was God's allegiance to His glory, but also God's infinite love for His people. Romans 3.24, it says that we are justified by His grace as a gift. The love of God for sinners overflows in gracious gifts. Justification is a gift, a free gift of love and of kindness to unworthy people. The forgiveness of sins and the imputation of God's righteousness to us are free gifts. They exact no payment from us. Let me tell you a little change that happened in my manuscript about 5.30 this morning. <laughs> I see it here written in blue ink over my brown. Just so that when I make a change, it can maybe bring clarity for you. My sentence that I wrote here at this point was... That means that they, that is the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness, cost us nothing because they cost Christ everything. I thought that was a clever way to say it. But as I sat there in bed this morning, underlining things and praying over this, I thought of Bonhoeffer, you know, cheap grace and costly grace and how it costs us nothing, costs us nothing, costs us nothing. Is that... A good way to say it. Lest a man lose his life for me in the gospel. I changed the word. I changed it. Because the word cost is, a, is an ambiguous word. The word I want to use now is this. Forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God are free gifts. They exact no payment from us because they exacted an infinite payment from Jesus. Now, I don't know if that means any difference for you, but it does for me. Payment means you come up with something from your resources and you exchange it and you, it is then owed to you and you pay for it and you earn it by paying. You can't do that for the forgiveness of sins and you can't do that for the righteousness of God. Jesus did that. He came up with a worth equal to the, the, the gift. He was the worth. The word cost, however, 
It does cost us something to stop believing in myself and to start believing in God is a death. I am crucified. I die to self-reliance. So, I, I close the parenthesis now on my little adjustment in the manuscript and maybe that will help you discern the difference between what I want to affirm in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's costly grace and the biblical truth that you can't buy it. You can't buy justification. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it with one or a hundred years of effort. Romans 5.17, again, the gift idea. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift, the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of God are free gifts flowing from the love of God for His people. Now, finally, number four. Being justified means being secured, secured by God forever. Being justified contains this truth of being secured by God forever. Romans 8.30 Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If you are justified, you will be glorified. Or that verse is meaningless. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is as though it is a done deal. He didn't even say will be glorified. It's done. Because, why? Because the death of Christ for his people secures everything they get. It is a finished, efficacious work. And if it was bought for us and finished for us and purchased for us completely in the cross, it's done. And if you get the first installment of justification, you can't fail to get the last installment of glorification because they both flow from the same purchase. If you don't believe that the cross was efficacious, effective in purchasing all that you will ever get for you, then you might think that glorification is yet perhaps in question. But if you understand that the payment for your justification is also the payment for your glorification, then to know yourself justified is to have the security that you will be glorified. And we need that security. You can't live in a world like this without the certainty that you will make it. Here's another expression of it in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things, that's glorification, all things with him? In other words, the argument for glorification is precisely the same argument as for justification. Namely, He gave His own Son. He did not spare His own Son. And if He did the greatest work, then will He not do the lesser work? I mean, the greatest work has already been done. I remember one of my professors in, in school 
he would draw a big mountain like this. And our little train is on this huge steep incline. And the steep incline is justification with the cross. And once you're over the top of that, the greatest and hardest work of how a holy God can reckon a sinner righteous, you just highballing it to heaven. <laughs> Glorification is all downhill. For God, He's done the hardest work, namely putting His Son forward. And Paul means for us to reason like that. 832, if He did not spare His own Son... I mean, I was back here praying on this chair, and I'm always thinking, Lord, what good, single, simple promise can I now lay hold on that you will come and you'll help me? And Romans 8.32 comes again and again. He who did not spare his own son for you, John, how will he spare any effort to help you do what you have to do? And then verse 33 right there in Romans 8 says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You are beyond indictment when you are justified. You are beyond condemnation. There is now none. Let me sum up these four things now. Justification means, number one, your iniquities are forgiven, your sin is covered. And He does not reckon to us our sin. Number two, we bear, we wear, we own an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, because He has taken our alien sin upon Himself and done away with it in the cross. Number three, you are loved infinitely by God in justification, and it is a free gift of grace, and you cannot pay for it in any way. And fourth, you are secured beyond indictment forever. Now I close with the question I began with. How can the Father take pleasure in the death of His Son? And I believe in these two messages we have heard two answers. They really resolve into one answer, but I'll just separate them. The answer this morning is this. God does not delight in the death of the wicked nor in the death of the righteous. That is, God does not look upon suffering, pain, and bloodshedding, and in any kind of wicked way, delight in pain. What God does is have a view to what that pain is achieving. The pleasure of the Lord prospered in the hands of the Son. Let me just read Isaiah 53.10 again. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That's resurrection. The pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now what was the pleasure of the Lord that was prospering in the hands of his dying son? Answer, he was procuring offspring and he was prolonging his days, which means he was gathering a redeemed people who would rise with him, live forever, praise God forever. And as God looks upon that achievement in the cross, he, he smelled it and it smelled good. He loved that achievement. My son is gathering for me a redeemed people. 
who like him will prolong their days into eternity, praising me forever and ever. And I am delighted with that achievement. And even if it costs him his life, I rejoice. And the gladness of God affirms the worth of that achievement. And the answer, the second answer, for why God is delighted with the death of the Son comes from last night. Namely, the Son's death as we saw, was a declaration of the Father's worth, the glory of the Father. In Gethsemane, Jesus said, For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And the Father's voice came, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So it was the Father's unwavering allegiance to the glory of His name that made the sin recompense necessary. And so when the Son willingly took that recompense upon Himself, every footfall on the way to the cross said, the glory of God is of infinite value. The glory of God is of infinite value. And when God heard those echoes of His Son moving toward the cross, He delighted in it. He took pleasure in it because the Lord rejoices in what is most infinitely valuable, namely, His own glory. And so, two things, meet and kiss in the cross or marry. One is God's passion to be glorified and the other is God's passion for sinners to be justified. And in the cross, there's no, no conflict anymore. And so God's love for sinners and God's love for his glory meet and marry and his heart rejoices and it is no exaggeration to say it was the pleasure of the Lord to bruise him. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I want our hearts to be now caught up into your heart as we take pleasure in your pleasure in the death of your son. We rejoice now, Father, that your glory was vindicated and our righteousness was secured. Thank you that you made a way for an alien righteousness to be made ours and for our sin to be made Jesus' alien sin and for us to stand now with all our failures, righteous, holy, accepted before you. And I just pray for every person in this room right now. There are situations in lives right now, situations in marriages, situations with kids, situations at work that are making us feel like we can scarcely go on another day. Even in churches. And I pray that the power of being forgiven, having an alien righteousness that is perfect, being loved, being secured forever by a finished work will so grip us, so hold us, put such a rock under our feet that we will live not only the rest of this day but the rest of our lives come what may in triumphant joy in the midst of all the adversities of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.